Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on Wednesday, September 1st, 2021, and our guest today is former prosecutor and current criminal defense attorney, Josh Ritter. Welcome back, Josh. We're thrilled to have you, and I do believe we can now say you are an official member of the True Crime Daily family, not only as a regular guest and friend of the show, but you're getting your own podcast, your own show. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's gonna be called uh, True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, and we're gonna be taking a look at um, current cases, high profile cases, but kind of a behind the scenes discussion of them. So I'm excited about it, and I think folks will really enjoy it. Okay, is that why your voice is deeper today? All of a sudden, I'm like, "Is what is this? Your new podcast voice?" <laughs> yeah, right. that's my professional voice. I love it. I love it. Okay, well, it's not out yet, but we hear they're editing it as we speak, so it should be out real soon, and we'll let everybody know about that. So, congratulations on Thank that. Thank you very We're much. Excited it's exciting. You. Thank you very much. All right, now let's talk at our talk about our horrible and gruesome cases this week. Gosh. Gosh, it just is always so, so troubling. But again, there's a little bit of justice here, a little bit of justice, and that's what we always seek here at True Crime Daily. Our cases this week, a married couple in Utah was murdered at their campsite days after telling friends and family that there was a, quote, creepy guy who was camping near them last month. This is what I always say, listen to your gut. If something's bugging you, don't go there. Don't walk in that building. Go across the street. Always listen to your gut. Creepy guy, pack up and move. <laughs> Our other case, this is the first one we're going to discuss, is out of Oxford, Mississippi. This is where a young Texas man has now taken a plea deal to avoid the death penalty. Josh, what's interesting here is he basically has pleaded guilty to murder and will be in essence, spending the rest of his life in prison. It's it's an interesting deal because the whole point was he wanted to avoid the death penalty. Yeah, and you actually see that quite often when the death penalty is on the table. It, it is still a deterrent to folks, you know, not a deterrent to murder, obviously here, but a deterrent for somebody taking their chances at trial when that's something that they could be looking at if on a conviction. 
But that's the thing though. There's always that risk. You're taking a risk, right? The jury could say, you know what? Um, find him guilty, but perhaps of a lesser count. So it, it's always interesting to me that, that you're willing, especially since he's so young and he's in his early 20s, to take life in prison, to yeah. take that as opposed to taking the gamble of a trial, which of course I know that his family is, not his family, but her family, the victim's family, of course is happy to just not have to hear the gruesome details in a trial, have this man in essence put away for life and have a sense of justice. I just find that interesting for a young person to take, to not take the gamble. Yeah, yeah, me too. And we've seen this in the past where you wonder why don't people give it a shot when it's they're looking at life in prison, what is it, what's the harm in trying to give it a shot? But um, you've mentioned this before that who knows what might be in play. Maybe they're done with it themselves. Maybe they want to put this behind them and just do their time. But I think as we begin to explore this case too, we're going to find out there was significant amount of evidence uh, that yes. he was looking at. And maybe that played a role too. His attorney turned to him and said, listen, I'm trying to save your life at this point and you need to take a deal. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's look at the case here. So he has been charged with the murder of Alexandria Alley Costile. She was a college student from St. Louis. Uh, she was found shot to death at a lake about an hour away from campus. And that would be the campus of the University of Mississippi, Old Miss. The motive for the murder, oh, he believed that she was pregnant. Yeah. That was the fear. This is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, there is no reason it, it is. ever to murder anyone, but we are really talking about two young college students. They have their entire life in front of them. And this is going to be the cause. Right. This is going to be the reason that we lose the life of a precious young woman and a young man who could have made much better choices. Gosh, I don't... Right. And there's some testimony from his his friends or something that he was so concerned about how this was going to affect his future. Well, look at his future now. I mean, look at her future now. I mean, it just, of all of the opportunities and other ways to have handled this situation, obviously this was the worst choice possible, but it's just, he created what he thought may have been a bad situation and turned it into a complete and utter night nightmare for both him and his family and her and her family. Absolutely. And as it turns out, she was not pregnant. So on top of it, on top of it, it's over a false alarm, over a false alarm. So this all happened in yeah. 2019. And yeah. just last Friday, August 27th, Brandon Thiesfeld pleaded guilty to first degree murder of Alexandria Costile in Lafayette County, Mississippi. Now, as we said, he's not getting off easy here because he's been sentenced to life in prison. However, at the age of 65, um, Josh, what is this? A conditional release may be available at the age of 65. What does that mean? Yeah, I think that's what they call what we would call uh, being paroled here. I think what they're saying is that he would be eligible for what in California we understand as parole. He would be eligible for that by the age of 65 or having served 15 years of that sentence. So he, in California, if you're if, if you're charged with a capital crime, what they call special circumstance murder, you're looking at death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. So what he was able to plead to here and probably played a part in the discussion he had with his attorney was 
life, but with the possibility of some sort of parole or conditional release, which they call it uh, in Mississippi by the time he was 65. So as I said, he didn't get off easy on this no, one. No, Did not get off easy on this. And do they often consult with the family? Uh, I mean, obviously they're not part of the deal, but if they have a real sense of injustice and say, no, this is not good enough, can they sway prosecutors? I mean, absolutely. I mean, the prosecutor should be making the decision that they feel is in the pursuit of justice. But the the input from the family absolutely plays a part in that. If they felt that this was somehow a miscarriage of justice, that, that you know, somebody doesn't ever deserve to see the outside world after what they've done to the, my daughter, I'm sure that would have played a role in the decision that the prosecutor made. But um, they should be making a decision on behalf of the people of their state as to what is the you know the best pursuit of int- of justice in that case. So let's talk about these two young people. In 2019, this is when the murder occurred. So Allie was 21. She was a student at the University of Mississippi, and she was working on her bachelor's degree in marketing. She's originally from St. Louis. Now, Brandon who was 22 at the time, was studying business administration, and he was from Fort Worth, Texas. The two dated on and off and had a weird, complicated relationship, according to all their friends. It was one of these, like, it was sometimes just a friendship. Sometimes it was a friendship with benefits. Sometimes they were boyfriend, girlfriend. So clearly it was a complicated relationship. So in April... In April of 2019, Allie thought that she might be pregnant. So she told Brandon, she sent him a picture of what turned out to be an inconclusive home pregnancy test. And she said she wanted to meet with him and talk to him in person. Brandon, now this is all based on the reporting and on court documents of their cell phone records, their interactions, all their communications were actually, it was all digital. It was all electronic because these two actually didn't see each other until the actual murder, according to authorities. So at the same time that Allie is telling Brandon, I may be pregnant, according to court records, his search history showed that he was looking for things like abortion pills and services because police had checked his internet history. So that tells you where the conversation is. Right. And again, Allie kept wanting to meet with Brandon. This went on for three months, which is really very complicated because the autopsy proved that she was not pregnant. The autopsy proved that she had never been pregnant. So finally, July, July 12th, Uh, Brandon said that he had had enough and he said, look, I'm not going to see you. I'm not going to talk to you. So you need to get an appointment and take care of this. That was his perspective. Her perspective may have been different. So we're in July now. Allie um, still trying to get Brandon's attention. Brandon decides to leave town. He visits his family in Texas. He tweets a photo of... um, a 40 caliber Glock handgun with the words, finally taking my baby back to Oxford. Okay, so Oxford is where the university is. So presumably he's going to take the gun back to Mississippi. I don't know what the rules are in Mississippi. He may very well have been able to do that legally. I I, I don't know what their um, carry rules are in, in Mississippi. 
that isolated of its own may not mean much. Right. But turns out yeah. this is the same gun that killed Allie. Yeah, it's kind of a, uh, a, a, a really frightening uh, preview of the things that may come. And, and one of the things that we're going to get into is how the, the tremendous history that they were able to piece together through his search history, through the text messages, it really, you get this complete understanding of how this started to really uh, boil over inside of him. And I imagine, like you said, for those, what was it, two or three months from the time that she told him she may have been pregnant to the time that he actually met up with her, it sounds like their conversations just dealt entirely with this pregnancy that he believed was taking place. Yeah, and that's a lot of stress on, yeah. on both of them, obviously. So he he go this gun was apparently purchased by Brandon's father. So based on the timeline, um, once Brandon gets the gun is when he changes his mind about meeting Allie. Okay, so you see a complete shift in attitude here. The two are texting back and forth, trying to figure out when they're going to get together. It's Friday night, July 19th. Allie says she's going out. She texted back and forth and, and she said, look, I'll let you know when I get home. He says, great, let me know. Um, but wherever it is that we meet, uh, I want it to be you know, safe and secure and quiet. Yeah. Probably indicating to her, oh, okay, the guy wants to have a serious conversation. Yeah. It, well, and it's also indicating to the prosecutors that this is premeditated, right? Like this no longer seems like some sort of heat of the moment thing that overtook him when he came to confront her about being pregnant. But he's asking, you know, questions about is her place private and when can we meet and will it be late at night? And, you know, all of this plays into circumstantial evidence of his state of mind. And was he planning this murder from the very get go? Absolutely. So officers also manage at the time, you know, once they do find Allie murdered, they also start piecing together things like surveillance videos, security videos to help piece what was going on in the last few hours of Allie's life. So Allie had gone to a local bar. So she's seen leaving the bar and getting into a ride share, which she took to get her home. So she left the bar area at 11.52 p.m., so shortly before midnight, a little after midnight, so now it's Saturday, July 20th, and she gets home just slightly after midnight. Okay, so Allie has roommates, lives in an apartment complex. 30 minutes later, surveillance video in the area where Allie lives picks up a truck that looks like Brandon's driving toward Allie's apartment. So everything's lining up here, right? And then we see the camera, on the camera, we see the truck leaving, going away from Allie's apartment. Allie's roommates say they really didn't hear her leave. They, they didn't even realize that she wasn't there. But that's not unusual, right? No, I, no. You know, that's not unusual. All right, so now, 40 minutes out from when the truck is seen leaving Allie's, presumably with Allie in it, police are able to grab the cell phone records for both Allie and Brandon's cell phones, and they can watch for 40 minutes. Both those cell phones are traveling exactly at the same time in the same direction, and it leads them to a place called Sardis Lake, and that is where Allie is found dead. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think another piece of evidence that if I were the prosecutor of this would play a role in me trying to explain to the jury that this was premeditated because he drives her straight to, it sounds like, this secluded area where her body was later on discovered. So again, what was he thinking? Was this something that just happened to occur at the spur of the moment? Or was he planning this whole thing out? And the more that you kind of piece this together, it looks very planned. It does actually look very planned. And actually, you know, except for the fact that he was very stupid about his texting, and then we will find some other evidence that he was even more not, I mean, it goes beyond sloppy. It really goes beyond sloppy. So Saturday, July 20th, this is the the morning, the next morning. Allie's found dead near Sardis Lake, which is about 30 miles from campus. She had been shot eight times and was left by a picnic table with several empty cans. And apparently there were 11 shell casings from a 40 caliber gun. Yeah. He, he unloaded the gun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a most standard... Uh, magazines that come in a gun, if you were to newly purchase it, are going to hold around 10 to 11 rounds. So he just completely unloaded that gun on her. Yeah. So same day, same day now, July 20th. This is very important. So she's found in the morning, late morning, 7.30 that night, 7.34 to be exact. Brandon tweets, quote, you dropped a bomb on me, my number one pick for groovy song of the summer, close quote. Could mean nothing or Sorry. it, right? Yeah. Or it could m- mean something happened in that conversation. What she said to him was dropping a bomb. Again, right. weird. Right. Why you put this on yeah, social media? Weird, weird wrinkle in all of this, yeah. It is. It is. Of all the things, I mean, it's not the most incriminating, but it just, again, gives you an idea of, well, hold on a second. You know, by this time, presumably you've heard that poor Allie is dead. And this, as her former friend, boyfriend, is how you react publicly? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get to Sunday. Very bizarre. So Sunday, the following day, this would now be July 21st, police contact Brandon. It makes perfect sense. Former boyfriend, had been having problems, you know, all this stuff. Obviously, they're going to look at him. So they say, please, can you come in and talk to us? He says, sure, I'll come in. But he never shows up. Okay, not a good sign. But, you know, lots of people can get scared. So they called him back. And he says to the police, oh, I've been drinking. <laughs> Sorry, I'll come the next day. Right, right. which was funny to me, too, because I imagine at that time the police didn't have much more than they knew he was the boyfriend because it seems like there would be a lot more exigency in the way they would have been behaving if they really thought he was the suspect of this murder at that point. That, you know, okay, we'll see it. When you sober up, go ahead and stumble on in and we'll have a chat. <laughs> right, right. But it is what, like, it's it's within 24 hours of finding her body, and they were apparently monitoring his cell phone because they, they knew where to find him. So when Sunday comes right. along and he's too drunk and he's just like, you know what, this isn't working for me, he decides to take off and the cops realize he's taken off because they're following him and they know exactly where he is. Right. So Brandon is arrested on Monday, the 22nd, 
in South Memphis at a gas station about 85 miles north of Oxford, Mississippi. And he had apparently blood on his clothes. And the police said that they found a gun in the trunk of his car. And what a surprise. The gun matched the shell casings found at the scene. Yeah. It was the yeah. same kind of gun. Yeah. You had talked about this earlier. There's there's a lot about this that seems very planned and very thought out. There's a lot about this that seems very sloppy. The fact that he still has the gun with him and bloody clothes with him, even several hours later, it, it shows that he was, to me, in some sort of just chaotic state of mind where he's really not thinking much beyond what had just taken place. No, absolutely. This is certainly not someone who's trying to cover his tracks, no. which, you know, is what if he is in self-preservation mode is where his head should be at, right? Sure. But he's actually making making it quite easy for the police to piece this together. This to me is, I think, um, well, it, it's, it's very incriminating. Is it ever going to be as incriminating as the murder weapon? I think that's always going to be number one is the murder weapon. But number two is a weird confession. Investigators found a legal pad at Brandon's apartment with a two-page handwritten letter that he addressed to his family. Yeah. <sighs> Quote, I am not a good person. It is not your fault. Something in me just doesn't work. I've always had terrible thoughts. I've always had these feelings. I just kind of felt off. I think this is the end of me. I'm either going to prison or going to die. I know I'm going to get caught. That was published in the Oxford Eagle. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Other than that weapon, ballistically matched to the bullets that were used to kill this young lady, uh, that note right there is probably, you know, your your, your second smoking gun, as it were. Um, this case, to me, was really fascinating from kind of a legal perspective of how this would be proved in court because it's it's got so many elements interweaving circumstantial and direct evidence from you know his search history on his on his computer or phone to the GPS tracking of the telephones to the the hearing a witness hearing gunshots the surveillance the ballistic match the letter to the family it's so much in, you know, there's no eyewitness to what took place but you can really see how prosecutors would have painted this very detailed picture of what had taken place the 24 and 48 hours leading up to and including her death. It would have been a fascinating trial. Oh, he left so much evidence behind. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is. So Brandon is charged with murder and then a grand jury indicts him of capital murder, making him eligible for the death penalty. At that point, he enters a plea of not guilty. So... Clearly, there was a change in direction in his defense from not guilty yeah. to accepting this plea. And then, of course, in addition yeah. to all the evidence that would have been presented by this time that they would have gathered and put together in a clear timeline, you also had things like, you know, Ali's friends um, posting, um, you know, kind of nasty things about him. Uh, alleging that he had been harassing Allie for years. Here's one of the posts, quote, he harassed her for years, took advantage of her for years. I spent countless nights holding Allie close, drying her tears about this monster. Yeah. 
Yeah, sounds like it sounds like they had beyond what you would consider kind of a dramatic young romance, but that this had turned, you know, there were there was at least the kind of, you know, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of, but like a, a preview of perhaps an underlying violence that he may have had towards her. Could be. So when he finally accepted this plea deal last week, he did admit that he killed Allie as part of this. He also became emotional in court, according to reporters who were there, and said that he apologized to Allie's family and to his own family in the courtroom. You know how I feel about these apologies. Please, yeah. spare me the crocodile tears. Right, right. Well, at least like you've pointed out before, at least he spared everyone having to go through the trauma of this entire trial. And he actually did give some closure, I'm hoping, to that family. But like you said, for whatever little value it may have had. Just a really, really sad case. Yeah, yeah. And and, and again, you know, a lot of these cases, we, we talk about this, but how avoidable, too. I mean, it, totally. it, no reason any of this needed to end up the way that it did. Uh, it, it Something that, you know, two young people could have t- talked about and moved on with their lives and they'd all be alive today. But it just took such a tragic and nightmarish turn. Mm, it's just so awful. On to our next case, which is out of Moab, Utah. The LaSalle Mountains are about 30 miles east of Moab, and that's about four hours southeast of Salt Lake City. Moab is located in the scenic area of Utah. Many people would say almost all of Utah is scenic. So it's um, kind of between Arches National Park and Canyonlands National Park. Super popular. The reason we're setting the scene for you is so you can understand that this murder took place at a campsite there, which is what a lot of people in the area do. If they're not camping, they're hiking and they're going through. Um, so that, that, that gives you an idea of of the area and the terrain that we're talking about. So on Wednesday, August 18th, two women were found dead at a campsite in the South Mesa area. Both were shot multiple times. Police said that it was clearly a double homicide and not a murder-suicide, which is important. Now, what's also interesting is that apparently this is the first time this particular police department has had to deal with a double homicide. So that tells you a lot, A, about the area and how safe it is, B, about how tricky this may be to investigate if you have a police force that's never had to handle a crime scene like this before. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's almost out of a movie in a weird way, right? Yeah, it's this, this very secluded area. It's it's gorgeous, but it's like you said, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a destination area for campers and a place that, you know, part of... During the pandemic, a lot of these campsites and everything have been rediscovered by uh, Americans. They're going out and seeing America rather than getting on a plane. And this is one of those places, I'm sure, that's seeing a lot of new tourist action. So here's the other thing that's weird. You have two people who have been murdered camping, right? And the Grand County Sheriff's Office puts out a statement saying that there is no current danger to the public and that detectives believe it was an isolated incident. Well, how can you say that if you don't have a suspect? Right. Like, how do they know that? This is the part I don't get. 
I don't think they do know that. I think, like you said, they've probably never seen something like this before, and they're just trying to f- avoid a full-fledged panic in their small community. I'm going to agree with you on this one. <laughs> I, I kind of don't think that they know. So the county sheriff's department has confirmed that the, the two women were originally reported missing on August 15th, so three days before they were found. The two women were married in April. Kylan Schulte, 24 years old, and Crystal Turner, 38. They were last seen Friday evening, August 13th, at a bar called Woody's Tavern. What else would you call a bar in that area? Exactly. (laughs) Right on brand. I love it. At Woody's Tavern, they were kind of regulars. Um, They would come in a few times a month. They also, you know, worked in the area. So people did know them. They came in around 6 p.m. They left at 9 p.m. So really not there that long. The bar manager remembers clearly told the Daily Beast that they hung out with two friends. Apparently no one followed them out when they left. So one thing that the friends that they were talking with at the bar recalled very, very clearly that the couple had said that one of the things that was really weird was there was a creepy guy who was camping next to them and but they didn't give further details which is really a shame when you think back at it now we're not saying that the creepy guy is the murderer here but we are sensing that they felt a form of danger and discomfort which is not a good thing and then they end up dead so clearly their gut was picking up on some yeah, some form of danger. I imagine, you know, the, the lifestyle that they were living where they, they, they were camping to live, right? This is where they lived and then they worked inside of the city. I imagine they ran into all sorts of colorful characters, uh, you know, in, in that kind of a lifestyle. So for them to have taken notice of this person and called him a, a creep or a weirdo, uh, it's 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 very foreboding. It it it. it it plays out almost just like a movie that that is kind of the last communication they had with anyone before they just disappeared and then were found later murdered. So the two of them had uh, three vehicles between the three of them. They had a camper van, um, a Kia SUV, and a Harley Davidson motorcycle, which will be key in a little while. So they lived out of their cars and they camped. That was their life. Both of them worked for a living. One worked at McDonald's, one worked um, at a local supermarket in town. And when they didn't show up for work, when Crystal didn't show up for work at McDonald's on Monday, that was the first indication that something was wrong. So they, again, two working women, uh, they chose to live this uh, more rugged lifestyle, which off the seems grid. off the grid, right? Yeah. Um, so not only did they tell the people at the bar that there was a weird, creepy guy, apparently when they had been, you know, communicating with friends, you know, hey, how's it going? Whatever the usual, you know, checking in. One of the things that they mentioned yet to other friends and family was the creepy guy. So clearly these women were really known in the community. They camped, you know, a little off off road there and then they would go into town and and work. So they were noticed immediately when they didn't show up at work and people organized search parties and started backtracking to figure out, okay, where could they be? Where were they camping? Especially since several friends and family had already been told about the creepy guy. Now, Kylan Schulte's aunt told NBC News 
that these are outdoors girls and that they were independent, they were confident, and that if someone made them feel uncomfortable, it had to be a really valid discomfort. So Kylan's family is already telling you, you know, these are women who know how to handle themselves. They really do. And the Salt Lake City Tribune reports that the couple's Harley Davidson, which was very valuable to them, had been found abandoned. And the family said that just would not have happened. That was a prized possession of theirs, very valuable, and they wouldn't just have left it anywhere. So, Josh, I'm thinking if they're found dead at the campsite where they were camping, and then the motorcycle is found elsewhere abandoned, could this have been a a crime of opportunity? Or even after the murder, that's what the murderer took. Yeah, I, I had I hadn't pieced that together, so that's really interesting. Um, absolutely. I mean, the the other thing that I thought was that what you just pointed out is how you know we talked about this before. You don't choose a lifestyle of living, you know, in a remote area camping if you kind of can't take care of yourself and you don't have a bit of kind of street savvy, as it were. And I I cannot see them being the type. Uh, to scare easily or being the type to not kind of know how to handle themselves if somebody's making them uncomfortable. And it sounds like they did try to handle it. It sounds like they moved campsites. So it, you know, again, we're dealing with an unsolved crime here. So who knows when this, what more will develop out of this whole thing. But it, it, you know, this, we talk a lot about a lot of different stories that are very disturbing. This is one of those ones that falls into the category of nightmare fuel for me, because this is like what we all imagine a horror film to start out as, is a couple of people who kind of can take care of themselves. They're not easily duped in the middle of a dark forest, feeling uncomfortable by someone, and they try to do something about it, and boom, boom, they vanish, and then before you know it, they're found dead. Yeah, it does have all those makings in this gorgeous, pristine backdrop as well so the problem here is you have a police department that really is not experienced in this area so who knows what kind of evidence has been trampled my guess is that motorcycle should have some kind of residue dna that may be the lead to figuring out at least who was in their immediate world right before they died i think that's a possibility then on august 24th the grand county sheriff stephen white said during a news conference, quote, public safety is paramount to us. We have increased patrols on the mountain. We're doing everything we can. We did overflights with helicopters. We want the public to know that we're doing everything we can to maintain their safety. So now you have an additional problem. You have an, you have two people who've been murdered and you're looking for a killer. And then you have people who both live there and or are traveling there as visitors who are freaked out that there is a murderer on the loose, which is completely impacting the community. And the community feels like, you know, the police aren't doing enough to protect them. Yeah. And I think we need to to appreciate, too, kind of the grand scale of the geography of this area that we're talking about. This is, you know, I'm I'm used to going to a campsite with my parents when I was a kid where you register at the front and everybody's got a parking spot and numbered stall. And, you know, it's a smaller sort of area. This sounds like when they're talking about camping, they're just out in the wilderness, as it were. I mean, that was one of the things to me that was so f- incredible about the story of their friend finding them 
is that I don't think we're talking about like she drove around to the local campsites and checked in with the ranger and said, have you seen these two young ladies? She's literally driving around what could perhaps be hundreds of square miles looking for where they might be and that she just happens to find them is is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So here we have it. Now the FBI has been brought in along with the Utah Bureau of Investigation because obviously the, the Sheriff's Department needs some support here. They say that they've received numerous tips, but they still need more help from the public. There's a $10,000 reward, but still no idea of a suspect. Yeah, that community is going through a lot with the idea that somebody who is willing to commit this kind of a heinous crime is still out there at large. It is time for our comments section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about on social media. And that means it's time for our very own Owen Michael. Owen, welcome. Here's what we got for comments uh, this week. Got two Alabama men were shot after a woman told her husband there was an intruder in their house who happened to be the woman's boyfriend on the side. The wife told her husband that there was an intruder in their house. He grabbed his gun and shot at the intruder. The intruder returned fire and both men were injured and they both survived. Police said the wife had been in a relationship with the boyfriend for more than a year and had let him stay in their house for an extended period of time. The boyfriend was arrested. The husband was not. So uh, John Kay says, what did he expect to happen? Which I think we're all curious about. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert M said, if she can hide a whole man in the same house you live in, you didn't <laughs> love her anyway. <laughs> good point, That's we're not talking one. about a large house here. <laughs> And Christine G says, uh, well, my husband would probably do the same thing. I'm sorry to hear that, Christine. I hope things uh, improve there and it doesn't escalate into something similar. Oh, my uh, God, this is crazy. I mean, that's a really good point. How do you hide an entire human being in a small house? So that's definitely one thing. Now, he could have worked outside of the house. That's always a possibility. But really, what did you think that the husband was going to do? I mean, if he thinks there's an intruder, he's going to get his gun and he's going to shoot the intruder. This is almost uh, like a sitcom, except for uh, the, the real dark uh, overtones here. Sorry, at Josh, least the, the, No, I was saying at least the boyfriend was smart enough to bring a gun with him. He probably knew trouble was on its way. <laughs> I predict the two men will become friends <laughs> and they will have nothing to do with her. My prediction. That would be poetic justice here. Yes. Uh, for our next uh, one, we've got a, a neighbor called authorities after seeing a man riding a stolen quarter horse down the street, uh, then walked it, and then the man walked it into a house in Mountain Rest, South Carolina. Authorities called the homeowner who told them his son was not allowed in the house. The house was later found to be littered with horse dung. Deputies found the horse in a bedroom, saying the horse, quote, appeared to be calm. The suspect <laughs> was arrested in the bathroom. Laura L. says, why the bathroom? Maybe they were afraid the horse would be upset seeing his friend get arrested. Peggy H said, I had a mare that loved to sneak in my kitchen. She always tried to open my fridge. She knew where I kept the carrots. She was a good girl. She never did any damage and didn't, didn't poop in the house. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I did not know that that was a thing, but apparently this is more common than we, uh, that we knew. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lori B with the capper, dude needs to stop horsing around. Well, I don't. Sorry about yes. That. Yes. That's what yes. we got this week. That's what we have, don't we? Don't we, Owen? <laughs> Thank you, Owen. It's always fun. 
Bye, guys. See you next week. Well, that is our show for this week. So, Josh, very exciting about your new podcast. Hope that'll be out soon. Tell us where people can find you if they want to follow you on social media or if they need a criminal defense attorney because they've stolen a horse and are hiding it. <laughs> sure. Um, you can check me out at, uh, on Instagram at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And uh, you can find our law firm online at worksmanjackson.com. Excellent. Have a great weekend, Josh. You can always find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. I mostly post about my Chihuahua, Jackie O, who was barking during this episode because her probiotics were delivered. She has tummy issues. Okay. So that's usually what I, you know, post about. I, I leave the crime stuff for work. Uh, you can find our podcast really wherever you get your podcast. You know where that is. Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google, and you can watch us on YouTube. You can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter, which Owen puts together at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.